and welcome to the brand new series of The Dirt, in association with the DC Thompson Shop. This is the podcast that weeds out the stigma around gardening mishaps. I'm Laura, editor of Grow Your Own magazine. And I'm Emily, Grow Your Own senior content creator. On this first episode of the new series, we will be discussing organic pest control hacks, tomatoes as carnivorous killers, and taking a look at the top jobs on the plot for the week. But before that, we are chatting with the gardener behind self-sufficient hub, Carl Minton. Hello, Carl. Hello, how are you doing? Good, yeah, good. Nice to see a bit of sunshine. So to kick off, we were wondering if you would be able to tell us about any of your particular growing successes um, since you've been growing your own, whether that's been harvests that have been amazing or plants that you've been surprised at their success or anything like that. Yeah, well, I suppose it wouldn't hurt just to give a, a little bit of background, just a really brief bit of background as to what we actually do. And because it's a family of five here with children and until about three or four years ago, we'd never grown any vegetables, really. It's not something we'd ever done. And now, of course, we're moving closer and closer to self-sufficiency all the time. And I've personally really sort of dove headlong into it. So the biggest success, I think, comes off the back of that knowledge and knowing that where we came from is so different to where we are today because my history and my recollection of beetroot, there is mm-hmm. one type of beetroot. If you'd if you'd asked Carl of five years ago what beetroot is, it's that horrible stuff in jars that's pickled, <laughs> doesn't taste particularly nice, is a little bit, you know, just the texture's all rubbish. And uh, so we started growing our own food and beetroot i think has to be by far the biggest success story because everybody in my family loves it and it's one of those things when i'm choosing what i'm going to grow every year i kind of need first of all to get the bulk of our crops you have to tick three boxes it has to be something that's going to grow quite easily something that isn't really high demand that i can just grow without too much difficulty Mm. it has to be something that is going to give me a decent amount of yield yeah. for the amount of space it's going to take. And then it has to be something my family enjoys. And beetroot, beetroot didn't actually make that list on the first year, but we planted some anyway because it was such a strong contender in the other two categories. We planted a little bit and it just went down like a house on fire. We have it grated in salads, just grated raw in salads. We have it roasted. We have My son will eat one like an apple. They're Aww. just <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. And by far, they're one of our top crops now. And they're one that, you know, they, when you hear people talking about if they're making a selection for which, which footballers are going to play in the England team, they talk about the first names on the team sheet. And beetroot would be certainly one of the first names on our team sheet when we're <laughs> working out our squad for the coming season. Do you have any favourite varieties that you grow? Choggia is just, I'm not sure that's how you pronounce it, but it's a really common one most of your listeners will be familiar with. Mm. And it's just that sweetness of flavour, nice colour, looks great in a salad, performs really well where we live. We have grown a few others and played around with it. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but a, a yellow variety we grew last year quite a lot of, and it just wasn't quite as sweet. But uh, yeah, so we always go with Choggia now every year and then a few extra just to uh, play around the edges like I imagine most people do. 
Yeah. <laughs> I guess um, with the yellow ones, the benefit of those are you're not stained by them so much after you've been preparing them. That's true. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> Permanently purple hands through beetroot yeah. harvesting season. <laughs> and so you mentioned your journey towards self-sufficiency when you started growing your own was that always the aim that you had in mind or was that something that came a little bit later well what happened was we moved my family and I lived in a very very ordinary house with a very very ordinary urban garden and I'm a builder by trade and we were basically given this amazing opportunity by pure happenstance. I was renovating a property for one of my clients who I'd worked for for years and years and years and we'd become very, very close. And at the last minute, another property came on the market and this is a property we were renovating for her to move into. Mm. And she decided at the last minute that she was going to buy this other property and live there instead. She owns several properties. And she basically said to me, you know, I've renovated this house. I don't want to rent it out to just anyone can I rent it to you and I said well we could never afford the rent so long story short we were basically able to rent this amazing old cottage with an eight acre garden for the same for the same rent as I could rent mine out for and it was just this incredible opportunity so we went from not having any inkling of this being on the cards to moving house within about 14 days <laughs> and, uh, and and the second we arrived here it just became really obvious to me that I did not want this opportunity to go to waste and I could imagine another version of myself walking along the road the other side of our hedge thinking they're not using that land what a waste and I didn't want that to happen so I immediately set to work trying to work out how we could really make the most out of every square meter here so within a year we had goats and pigs and chickens and all of those things and of course a huge vegetable bed and two very very small the the cheap versions you can buy online polytunnels mm. all that up and running within like a year and that's amazing it's just it's well, just been this incredible blessing to me and it's something that was never on the horizon wasn't even on our radar and this was about four years ago now and it's just grabbed hold of me like mm. I could never have predicted and now I'm well here I am four years later and we're eating homemade cheese from the goats that I've milked myself oh. our own <laughs> hams that I've cured from our pigs that we've raised and I butcher and slaughter them all myself here on the property and of course all our own fruit and veg so yeah it's just been this incredible journey and it just came out of nowhere, completely out of nowhere. That's amazing. I mean, looking back at those four years so far and like that total change of pace and lifestyle that you've just explained, um, what would you say are your um, sort of biggest fails on the plot so far? Well, I, I'm one of those people that rather annoyingly don't consider very many things to be a failure because <laughs> well, you're in the right I'm, place here. <laughs> well, it's how I do all of my learning. And you can spend money and time and go on a course or you can just have a go and mess things up and you'll learn twice as much in half the time. Mm. So I don't really consider anything I've done to be a failure. However, one of the things we did, I feel like I'm squeezing so much into a a short amount of time. So uh, if if you need me to elaborate on anything, please do catch me and, and let me know <laughs> yeah. but we, so after the whirlwind of the last four years the house is now being sold and we're having to move we're moving back to our original house that we own with a much smaller garden and we're having to temporarily downsize while we try and buy a field now 
all that being said, and me having absolutely no regrets, one thing that we did do, because we thought we were going to be living here for a much, much longer time, is we made a lot of really long-term decisions. So one of the first things we planted was an asparagus bed, which yeah. we'll be you know, harvesting this year for the first time, if we're lucky, yeah. before we move. And we planted lots of immature fruit trees, and I dug a pond, and all these kind of things that were really, really long-term projects. So you could certainly, if you had another mindset, you can consider all of those mistakes or failures. But I don't because I've learned so much through doing all of those things that I wouldn't, I genuinely wouldn't change a thing so mm. uh, those are though that, that's i suppose things that you could chalk up as mistakes or failures but but i personally refuse to do so <laughs> um so do you have a wish list for your perfect field that you're hoping to buy do you, like with everything that you've learned in the last few years do you have any particular requirements that you're looking out for or anything that really suits your your needs well as always it's going to come down to budget so in all honesty, and all honestly, we, we'll take what we can get. But uh, if if I had a magic wand, you know, I would think about things like the, the ground. I would like to be away from really, really heavy clay, which is what we're on now. Mm. And particularly with not so much for the plants, but for the livestock, yeah. it's really gets muddy boggy really quickly so that would be a good thing i'd like to be i'd like to have a certain amount of woodland i'd like to have a nice sunny <laughs> slightly <laughs> sloping aspect uh, like everybody else you know all the usual things but in all honesty what it's really going to come down to is location and distance from our house. And if yeah. we can find anything at all within two or three miles of our house, which I'm sure we will if we're patient enough, then that's that's the perfect field. Yeah. Um, so have you found that there have been any challenges that have cropped up with growing things and also keeping the livestock at the same time no they work fantastically well in harmony with one another now i know that the bulk of your listener base will be thinking and wanting to hear about the vegetables mainly but i have <laughs> to say using them all in a because i try and use permaculture principles in what i'm doing and using the livestock as part of that system it really does benefit everything so we've got of course all of our own manure and compost that we're producing here from things like animal bedding and manure and things like that so we're not having to purchase in very much at all certainly no fertilizer we've never added any fertilizer to any of our ground as long as we've been here and our ground is as fertile as it gets and of course the byproducts of all this growing all of the the trimmings from the vegetables and you know you'll know yourself if you grow a cabbage how much of the outside leaf is really discarded and and, the, and that goes across the board and your bean plants or well, my goats just absolutely love those when we pull them out at the end of the year and it all goes into this cycle of production yeah and it means we're able to keep our waste down but we're also at the same time, producing things that most people or most gardeners who only have a vegetable garden would have to buy, like compost or soil amendments. You know, we're doing all of that holistically with what we have here on the property, and the two work really, really well together. Yeah, and then, so is it something that your whole family have embraced? Is everybody loving the self-sufficient life as much as you are? 
to varying degrees and in, in varying <laughs> aspects because uh, my wife certainly is my wife's all in and my children when I tell you their ages you can probably imagine what they think of it my eldest daughter is 16 and then I've got two boys <laughs> 14 and 12 so yeah. my, my daughter basically uh, covid or no covid chooses to self-isolate in her bedroom for most <laughs> of the time um, and my eldest son is is getting getting similar my youngest boy is much more involved in the garden mm. and we and with the animals and what have you but uh, you know to, to varying degrees and for me it's as much as anything else it's just and you will resonate there's something to resonate with you and your listeners i'm sure it's that feeling you get when you put a plate because everything starts and ends in the kitchen everything does and food is such a huge thing and food has always been a huge thing for me even before we were living here and when you put a plate of food down and you think every single part of that came from the garden it's just it's just such a feeling and you can't buy that you cannot replace that feeling with Mm -hmm. anything else and for me, that's enough. And and the family all buy into that a little bit. And also, if, I, if you'll allow me to run on a little bit longer, I, I'll also say that I've always been, it's always been really important to me that our children knew where their food came from, even yeah. when we weren't producing it ourselves. So I would stand at the meat counter with the children and explain what's come from, what type of animal, et cetera, et cetera. Because I think there's such dishonesty in the food production system and and when i say the food production system i'm including us as consumers in that and and when i say dishonesty what i mean is it's so easy for people to sit down and eat a plate of food and not give any thought and by extension not have any knowledge of what's actually gone into producing that and i think that is a lot of what can contribute to some of the practices that we might not agree with happening in factory farming and things of that nature. And I'm always very, very keen that you should know what it is you're consuming, what it is Mm -hmm. you're buying, where your money's going, what it is you're supporting and all those types of things. And just the, it's almost, it's not even through choice, but the ignorance amongst most people about some of what you and I might consider to be the most basic aspects of what we eat is just, it's just so sad. It saddens me. And I've always been someone who tried to reconnect that link with myself and with my children. So it's been fantastic to to, to enable that, you know, to further that goal. It's been fantastic that the children can see. And I I know I've mentioned meat a few times and it's not really the core topic for your podcast. So forgive me there, but it's great (laughs) for the, the children to see, you know, if you want to drink milk in your cereal, this is what happens, you know, it comes mm. from an animal and the animal needs looking after it in these ways, et cetera, et cetera. If you want to eat cheese, if you want a loaf of bread, you know, what goes into that? And most people, if they genuinely understood exactly what went into a loaf of bread, particularly with what has now become the more conventional farming practices. So we, if we start right back at fertilizing, adding fertilizer to the field or plowing, right through to it being delivered with our day, with our shopping delivery, if people understood every single step of that, they'd probably think, how on 
earth could this loaf of bread cost what it does? And I think that's a very interesting question. And it's one that we should all ask ourselves a little bit more often because that, I think, and it's the same with vegetables, you know, how can they deliver these carrots at this price at the supermarket? I've no idea. But by asking those questions, you start to regain ownership over what it is we're consuming i think yeah and you can you only even if I'm, I'm a huge proponent of anyone can do this and i'm gonna you know prove that to a degree when we move house anyone can do this to some degree even if you live in a flat you can grow some herbs on your windowsill everyone can do a little bit and just add to it progressively over time whether it's through like i say growing herbs on your windowsill or doing your first bit of composting yourself even if you've got a very small house you there's all sorts of which i'm sure you've covered there's all sorts of different methods of composting to suit your arrangement and when when you start doing those things and really get involved it's it not only is a fantastic feeling and is amazingly beneficial to the sustainability of our life here on on the earth but it's also a really great way of learning and learning how we make a difference and where we can make a difference if we choose to yeah absolutely i think you're absolutely right Mm. so on the subject of things that you can that you can learn do you have any little tips or tricks or hacks that you can share with the listeners for um growing any fruit veg or herbs yeah i do it's not a growing hack though but it is a hack i think it's great and you may or may not agree i'm sure you will agree but (laughs) one of the one of the hardest lessons that we all learn eventually no matter how hard we try not to is how important it is to label our seedlings yes (laughs) and you know i really i really tried not to learn that lesson for two or three seasons surprise crops yeah 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 i've no idea what this is where to plant it when to transplant it what to do with it so what i do now and i think this is a great thing that everybody can do and it costs nothing is i use homemade slate markers and they're reusable i can reuse them every year and all it's going to cost you is a tipex pen because if you go and speak to your local roofing company or your local building supplier when they make slate roofs there is a certain percentage of slates that get cracked and damaged. They're going to go in a skip. And building sites, actually, I'm a builder by trade, so this is how I know this. Uh, Building supply companies, the companies like Juicens that supply building materials, if they sell slates, they'll have a little pile of broken slates next to the slates they're going to sell. And if you go and ask for them, you can just have them and you can cut them up really, really easily. You can either buy yourself a special pair of scissors to do it, or if you might have a grinder to do it, or even if you've just got an old hand trowel, there's a little trick you can learn on YouTube to cut your slates in lines. And then all you need to buy is a Tipex pen, write your seed name on that, and then you've got a slate marker that says, I don't know, um, Grower's Delight, and you can stick that in your plant and reuse it year after year after year it costs absolutely nothing they're weatherproof they're going to put up with whatever you put them through and mm-hmm. they're really really clear and they look nice they look pretty yeah. as well so that's, that's uh that's definitely a tip i think uh, more people should be doing yeah yeah that's a great tip yeah that sounds amazing <laughs> like that one yeah. <laughs> yeah um following on obviously like you say you've had four years of 
learning everything that um that you've built on so far so what would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned on your plot the biggest lesson i think is how beneficial being involved in the in this type of thing and this is particularly the plants now it's it's everything i do but we're getting away from the animals now and talking mainly about the plants is how beneficial working with plants can be for your mental health because I'm someone who has suffered with depression and I'm also someone who suffers with all sorts of things in the area of mental health, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we do now in modern society is we work constantly to these deadlines and finite, discrete tasks that need to be completed. Whether you work full-time making podcasts or whether you work in a factory or whether you are a solicitor or a builder, you're always working on a project. And that project has a finish line and it's a race to the finish line. And to get to the finish line, there's probably uh, anything between 10 and 100 different little mini finish lines that we're constantly aiming at throughout our days and weeks and lives. And the second you finish something, you look up and the next finish line is there waiting for you. Yeah. And gardening takes all of that away, particularly if you're able to work in a holistic manner and you're trying to use your own compost and things like that, because there is no finish line. Nothing is ever finished. Nothing's ever complete. And there's no such thing as perfect. And if I'm growing some carrots, I pull those carrots out the ground and you might think the job's finished, but not even close because I'm taking the carrots out the ground and already I want to be planting in there some seedlings in that same piece of ground that are going to carry on. Now, these seedlings are seedlings that I might have started two months ago. I'm then going to take that carrot away and I'm going to strip the top off it and maybe put that in the compost and that compost is going to rot down over the course of the next year and that's going to become my garden mulch for the following year, which I'm then going to grow another load of carrots in. We're talking two or three years in advance i'm going to take the carrot peelings i'm going to feed them to my hens those hens are going to eat them they're going to give me eggs and they're going to pass those carrot peelings on as manure which again is going to feed my garden and there is it's just this constant cyclic nature and impermanence of everything we do you never you never say oh uh, my wife's called jackie i'd never say oh, jackie jackie please make sure you've got time to come and look at the garden on Tuesday because it's going to be finished <laughs> on, on, tu- on Tuesday. It's done. No. It's, it's not, not, not a, it's not a thing, is it? It's not a thing. And I haven't even mentioned, you know, the weeding and, and all of those other things that are just perpetual cycles of nature that we have no choice, but to embed ourselves in and become involved in. And if we're really, really lucky, we'll find that they are guiding us rather than the other way around. And yeah, that's been so so beneficial for me and my own personal mental health that's the biggest thing I've learned I think yeah absolutely I think that's something that we um touch on relatively regularly on the podcast is the well-being benefits of being outside being in nature switching off from the news constant updates constant emails all the time and just having a moment to exist in nature and watch things grow and not grow and (laughs) everything (laughs) between and knowing that I mean another big thing that we always mention is the fact that you've always got next season another crack at it you can try a different variety if you don't like something you can you know there's as you say endless possibilities in the best possible way yeah yeah and and this is this is definitely not something i've learned because i've always had this innately within myself but this is something everyone else 
needs to learn if they haven't already. And I know that this has come up before on your podcast is to just get comfortable with making mistakes uh-huh. and don't, don't worry about it because you know, they're just, they're part of the process and that's how we all learn. And the thing is with gardening, the best gardener in the world could come to your garden and have a complete failure in their first <laughs> season. It happens. Yeah. It happens even with people who, you know, have a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of expertise. So to think that if you're a novice gardener that you're going to not make mistakes is foolhardy. And it's, mm. but it's fine. But that, that's the bit that, that's really important is to understand that that's okay. That is all yeah. part of the process. And it's, there's no, no problem at all with making mistakes. And that's how we learn. Yeah. And I mean, especially when you take into account things like the absolutely unpredictable weather Mm. and things like that. And like you say, conditions and there might be one year where a particular pest is absolutely thriving. And (laughs) it's I mean, every season is different. And that's part of what's so amazing about it, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first year here, we grew parsnips and I can't remember the name of it, but there's a there's a nematode worm that, that causes um, like a root knot. It might be called root knot. I don't know. I don't know if you guys know what it's called, but something that causes the parsnips to form incorrectly. Mm, and right. if I hadn't grown parsnips, I'd never have known. The only way I was going to find out that I've got this nematode in the ground was the first year I grew parsnips was going to be a failure. So, you know, that's a good example of how you can learn and, and through doing that the following year grew parsnips in a bucket great yeah. no problem <laughs> just in compost and you know working through that process google is your friend and yeah. there, there are so many fantastic resources if you've got a problem you can look it up we, we didn't have that 30 years ago but but now we do we've got the world's information in our pockets so you know if you've got a problem you can troubleshoot it yourself and then that there is when you're really making progress when you troubleshoot something yourself and then you learn from it so that next year you do grow your parsnips in a bucket because you've got this issue where you live but the process of learning about that is part of the journey, part of the experience. And that's how you get from being someone who doesn't know anything to someone who can grow really good vegetables reliably, even if it's not every year and every vegetable, you know, that's, that's how you do it. Yeah, absolutely. And then, I mean, considering all the animals and crops you've got going on, we'd better let you get back to it. But um, before you go, (laughs) um, before you go, would you just be able to let the listeners know where they can find you online yeah of course so uh, my name's carl as you know and uh, i am the self-sufficient hub i'm the host of the self-sufficient hub podcast and the self-sufficient hub youtube channel where i talk about all the kinds of things that we've been talking about today and i also lead foraging walks down in the southwest of the uk so if you're interested in coming foraging and you want to learn how to identify mushrooms or wild plants and you live in the southwest of the uk then do get in touch you can do that at selfsufficientcontact at gmail.com lovely well thank you very much it's been great to speak yeah, to you thank you so much emily shall we go and hear from our sponsor yes let's go dc thompson shop has a wide range of garden plants accessories and gifts save up to 50 percent with many collections For a garden that takes care of itself with effortless, low-maintenance plants, the shop has lots of popular bulbs, bedding plants and ground cover perennials too. For real garden enthusiasts, there is a choice of more unusual varieties. 
However green your fingers, there is something for everyone. Visit dcthompsonshop.co.uk and place your order today. Hi everyone. Hey. Hello. Have we got our cups of tea? Yes. Well, I have a large bottle of water, so stay hydrated everyone. Yes, need to get better at that. <laughs> <laughs> that is a lesson we learned on the last podcast. Yeah. So, yeah. It's good for you and your plants and for not killing trees. I actually do that though when I'm at the um in, in the kitchen. <laughs> oh, probably don't do that. No. <laughs> do you? <laughs> no. I meant to say because I'm growing my plants on the kitchen windowsill when I go and get myself a drink of water. That is often when I water my plants because I'm like, oh, I'm drinking. Does my plant need a drink? Oh, okay. As long as it's the water bottle you're using, yeah. it's absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> we thought that was, we were going, taking a turn pretty early there. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh. Speaking of caring for your plants, not so much watering them, but I was having a little look around online and I um, found a story on Home and Gardens online about using organic pest controls and using citrus peel mm. to try and deter pests. Oh, right. Now, I know um, as a cat owner, apparently using citrus is good because cats don't like citrus. So yeah. if you don't want them to go on your plants, put some citrus peel in there. Yep. Do you have any, have you tried citrus in your gardens or do you have any things that you've tried like that? I know I've mentioned before, I've tried the sheep's wool pellets mm. against mm. slugs, which are very effective but the one caveat I would say is your garden smells like a farm for a little <laughs> while but I think I'd be tempted to try orange peels but then yeah. I would also feel a bit like does it just look like you've <laughs> dropped your food rubbish yeah everywhere? and yeah. obviously that must end up sort of rotting and mm. smelling a bit strange after yeah. a little while well, I, I can confirm that my cat absolutely despises the smell of oranges I mean, she will turn up her nose at anything like that. Like, I, it would definitely do the trick if you're trying to prevent, like, prevent cats from, you know, Toileting. doing the dirty on your dirt. Just <laughs> <laughs> what you were going to say. Oh. Doing the dirty on your dirt. <laughs> <laughs> I know I constantly set challenges on here and then never follow them through, but um, no, we, we will. I'll grab a lemon or a lime. Yeah. And then I, I always have oranges. I never eat all of my oranges up I'm terrible so oh. that'll put them to good use actually so maybe I should yeah yeah <laughs> make that a challenge for myself I think it's so I know that obviously as we've talked about a lot it's really good to be embracing a biodiverse plot and you don't like the the number one objective isn't always just get rid of the pests now but obviously if we're going to any organic methods mm. of doing so are the best way of doing it I wonder so. the only thing I would say is I just wonder how they like them um, creatures like hedgehogs and things mm. would react because they must have a good sense of smell as well so I wonder if it yeah, would deter them as true. well that's true but yeah. um, you know perhaps they're not worried about it well I mean that does kind of link into another thing that I was um, talking to my parents about a while back because my dad has got some cobnut trees on his allotment and he hasn't had a single nut from them in the last couple of years because of squirrels. Oh. Um, so they were talking about various different ways that you can put the squirrels off and apparently mint, planting mint around oh, the bottom of them, okay. which I think he's going to try because, you know, you also can't have too much mint. Um, but then also there's putting chilli powder around because they don't like 
obviously you don't like chili powder but then again I thought oh but what if something else actually yeah. eats the chili powder yeah yeah it's, it's very difficult isn't it I mean you want to cater for all but yeah I guess you can't keep one species out you know quite often it will probably have a domino effect in terms of mm. that it will also keep beneficial creatures away from your plot as well which you probably obviously don't want so yeah I think you have to think carefully about anything like this that you decide to implement in terms of hacks and things and also I know we do love a hack on this like podcast but I've seen it quite a lot recently not necessarily always in the gardening world but also in like cleaning videos and other things content creators will make videos just to get views and likes but doesn't necessarily mean that their hacks and tips are good or useful or valuable and it's worth highlighting that you need to use a bit of common sense alongside those things as well I wonder if we have seen the same video it's one that was going around on Facebook and it was things that you can sow seeds in Mm. which is probably some of them are true but it's like someone will just put a tomato seed on top of a sponge yeah and oh, then wow. suddenly there's like a full tomato plant. Yeah. <laughs> like I think yeah. we might be skipping some fairly crucial stages there. Yeah. And also I've seen so many growing hack videos where they talk about, oh, you know, just take some vegetables that you've grown or you've picked up from the supermarket, take the seeds out and grow them. And quite often this, this produce isn't produced in the UK. It's not even produced outside in outside conditions. These might be from Colombia or Spain, or which has got a completely different climate. And you're expecting people to have exactly the same results growing them, you know, in Sheffield. It's not going to happen, is it? I think the thing is, it's always good to experiment. And there's certain things that will come off really well. But it's also important to remember that a lot of these things will be varieties yeah. that won't grow yeah. the same as the parent fruit so yeah yeah I mean by all means experiment and try things and absolutely embrace the hacks but just understand that you know it is an experiment it's not a guarantee yeah as as many things are yeah that's true yeah it's very true um I mean in terms of hacks that I've picked up I mean a lot of our readers well our social media followers in particular um use the technique of the slugs for getting rid of slugs or keeping them away they, they'll put wood bark and wood chippings around their beds and people really do swear by that they think it, it really does work mm. and keep them because they won't want to sort of travel over the bumps and the the lumps and the, the spikes yeah. and the wood chippings and things like that and with the salt and things sometimes just back to basics might work for some people but obviously for bigger invasions I'm not always sure yeah, yeah. if it keeps everyone away you, you know they might start sacrificing one and using the other as a slur yeah. <laughs> like a little bridge <laughs> you know? but then they you know they make it makes sense because they like obviously when it's just rained and everything's slick and yeah. it's the right sort of surface for them to sort of yeah roam around in so if you're yeah. creating a harsher texture yeah. for them to actually crawl over yeah it does make sense well Gravel, you know yeah. Yeah. um yeah. in the last episode when i said about as well as the sheep's pellets we also constructed like mini stone henges around yeah. them these are sharp little bits of slate and i'm not going to tell you that it completely worked because i mean some of them still got eaten and I just think I do not know what these oh, had brutes, armor on. what these brutes of Suffolk slugs actually are <laughs> that they're like I'm just gonna go over this sharp thing and this woolly thing and they're yeah. still bellied steel footed <laughs> yeah they call it a foot don't they oh there you go yeah steel foot is it a foot I, I don't know I th- that does ring a bell now you said that <laughs> yeah slug anatomy <laughs> you still our research featuring next week on Sophie's Corner <laughs> Um, following on um, 
from the slug talk. Um, my story this week, um, well, I say story, it's basically something I've been looking into recently um, about the idea that tomatoes, our, our beloved tomatoes that many a grower loves to produce each season, are actually red-blooded killers. <gasps> <laughs> you gasp yeah can we insert some sort of dramatic music in here i mean i think that would be appropriate i mean you have to tell us more (laughs) so basically um there is evidence to suggest that tomatoes are passive carnivorous plants because unlike a venus flytrap which physically opens and closes and traps flies inside the stems are covered in quite thick white hairs so scientists think that these hairs are there to trap flies within the stem and then Amazing. basically they'll they'll die perhaps crisp up a little bit and then fall down to the soil where they'll decompose oh. and then nourish the soil and feed the plant that's really wow. interesting yeah. that's amazing yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was quite an interesting idea and actually i thought well that's i've never heard that before and i have oh. when i've grown tomatoes before i have seen actually that happen and mm. i thought oh like but you don't you don't you think don't of it, it. No. because like, you know you, oh that's unfortunate for yeah. that poor fly <laughs> but then they are part of the nightshade family i suppose so there's you know oh. there's that sort of undertone to them I suppose they're not the only plant though because I mean much as I don't want to continue to be an incessantly broken record but um did you know that figs aren't vegan (gasps) yes I had heard that because a lot of wasps go in and then die inside so you like there's potentially decomposed wasp inside oh I mean it's definitely putting me off it I don't think it'll put you (laughs) off figs Laura but Mm, wasp (laughs) no i mean not not in every single one but i mean i think what they're saying is you can't guarantee that an animal hasn't lost its life to produce the food i wonder what the percentage is of waspy figs in the world i wonder what your likelihood is to come across one Mm. (laughs) and at at this very moment every listener swears off figs (laughs) for the rest of their yeah yeah i mean no 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 not really they're they're fine really just just pretend there's not ever been a wasp but that's i'm so flabbergasted about that about tomatoes but then technically that means does that mean figs are carnivorous then would would they benefit from the wasp or not i don't know if they benefit well they benefit from the wasp in terms of the fruit forming, I guess. Mm. But I might I be talking not absolute consuming now. The, the wasp, I suppose. But yeah, like I don't think the wasp is required to die in no. there, but it can. If anyone knows the actual proper science behind that, please do let us know. Yeah. It would be really interesting. Yeah. Just thought it put tomatoes in a whole new light, you know. Yeah, I quite like that. I mean, you take your life into your hands in the garden, yeah. really, don't you? Especially if you're a flower <laughs> wasp, apparently. Oh. <laughs> oh well speaking of the garden and all its glory <laughs> this is a bit of a lighter subject <laughs> um uh, there is an article by ideal home mm. and it discusses new research um which reveals the common gardening mistake that could devalue your home so it's ways of increasing the value of your home based on your garden and what to plant and when mm. so so what they what they say and i think the research was actually carried out by Gazebo Shop. They say that by planting spring flowers solely in the spring and then leaving it for the rest of the year, like it's lovely for the springtime, like it looks really nice. But for the rest of the year, your garden looks a bit barren. Comes winter time, there's no flowers. And if you really want to put something there for future mm. potential buyers, do so sort of in a way that's going to sort of 
decorate your garden all year round. Right. So things like daphnes, they'll bloom, they'll bloom sort of late winter. You haven't got to wait till spring. And things like buddleias, they say, put those in hydrangeas, things that are going to keep coming back year after year. Okay. Rather than doing a quick... I mean, I, I can't talk. I love <laughs> wildflowers, so I feel I'll still be doing that. But if they say if you put a few more sort of, you know, longer lasting plants in, it's meant to increase your value of your garden. I have to say, it does make a lot of sense, especially yeah. if you're planning on selling your home to, say, potentially first-time buyers. Yeah, because that's it. There's such, oh, not necessarily always first-time buyers, but there's something about having the weight off your mind of, oh, the garden's actually in an okay state, in a good state, mm-hmm. ideally, when you buy a home. That's always a lovely feature to think, well, at least I yeah. haven't got to tackle seven-foot weeds and this, that and the other, yeah. you know. That is very, very true. And it's actually funny you say that. There was actually a survey conducted, mm. um, which is also featured in this article, and it says that 85% of first-time buyers feel that having a garden is important mm. to them. So yeah. it's obviously... You know, it is this thing for first-time buyers mm. that having a nice a nice garden is a big priority. Plus, especially given the lockdowns and everything, I think it's easier to romanticise a house when yeah. it has a nice garden. Very, very true. If you can yeah. sit there and go, oh, look, this could be my home. I could sit in the summertime with a, you know, a cocktail and, yes. you know, just sit and enjoy my garden. Yeah. It just, it, I think it's actually quite a very powerful selling feature if, yeah. if you use it wisely definitely i do have to say though the thing that's difficult about it is styles of gardens are going to vary so much from person to person and i feel quite strongly that there are a lot of things in my garden that are perennials that should i move out i would need to leave and (laughs) it sounds really stupid but i feel a bit like I don't want to leave things to someone that might not want them. <laughs> like, I want someone to want them. Yeah. It's just, I think... have to be in the contract. Yeah, I think it's such a strange... You build up such a relationship, in a way, with your outdoor space that it feels very personal yeah. to you at the same yeah. time, I think, doesn't yeah. it? Like, someone who wants an absolutely perfectly manicured, clean lines sort of place is never gonna like what I've got going on (laughs) but I really do so exactly then I wonder if somebody like that would relish the challenge if your garden isn't already like that do you understand I think sometimes people like to be able to change it to exactly what they want it to be if they have the time and and the sort of influence to do it Um, but like you say it seems a lot of younger buyers maybe like work full time might not have as much time to transform a garden so it would be ideal if it was in a good condition to begin with yeah yeah, yeah. it caters for different people doesn't yeah. it yeah right that's it absolutely well I think um, Laura you've got some jobs on the plot for us now I do watering is a key task over the summer months some crops will need more than others so make sure you prioritise these when planning your watering routine Check all of your climbing veg are well secured to their supports and hoe off weeds from the ground when the weather is dry. It's also a great time to complete any summer pruning of fruit bushes such as gooseberries and currants as well as kiwi fruits. There are still some pests and other problems about the plot this month so keep an eye out for aphids and treat with your preferred method. Also watch out for potato and tomato blight and dispose of any infected foliage. Have a great week in the garden And until next time, happy growing. Thank you for listening to this series of The Dirt. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free so you never miss an episode.
We'd love it if you'd rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the word to your plot neighbours. Plus, we have an exclusive Grow Your Own magazine offer just for listeners of The Dirt. All you need to do is visit growfruitandveg.co.uk forward slash GYO52. That's GYO and the number 52. Or call 0800 904 7000 and quote GYO52 to receive three issues for just £5. That's a saving of a whopping 76%. Every issue of Grow Your Own is packed with gardening advice, expert tips and tricks, and jobs to tick off your list. And each magazine comes with a wonderful bonus gift, such as selections of seeds. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And on a final exciting note, remember to get in touch if you or any of your gardening friends have some great stories of successes and fails on the plot. You could be a guest on the next series.